Okay, so this week's Torah portion is a Torah portion of Pinchas. And it really is a connection to last week's Torah portion. Last week's Torah portion, we have the ending of the story when Bilam, the evil prophet, was not able to curse the Jews. He gave some immoral advice to the king of Bullock and told him, send down your women with the idols. The women will entice them into immorality. And then, you know, at the appropriate moment, they'll pull out their idols and then they'll have idol worship. Between the idol worship and the immorality, um, God will be upset at the Jews and they will be punished. And that's what happened. And um, about uh, 100,000 died from the idol worship. And then there was another 24,000 um, that died in a plague because of, the, because of the immorality that took place. And it got so bad that it reached to the upper enchilant. The prince of Shimon came and um, he brought the princess of uh, Moab and he asked, he asked, um, he asked um, Moses, "Am I allowed to uh, to? Um, I'm sorry, not uh, not Moabite, um, uh, Midianite." And she went. He went and he asked um, uh, uh, Moses, um, "Am I allowed to be with this woman?" And Moses said, "No." Then how come you're allowed to be with your wife if she was the daughter of Yitro, who was a priest from Midian? Um, and then Pinchas saw what was going on. Pinchas took a spear. He killed them both. Um, he killed both the prince of Zimri, the prince of, of the tribe of Shimon, eight prince of a head of family from the tribe of Shimon, and he killed the woman, Cosby, um, which was the daughter of one of the heads of Midian. Okay, that was the end of last week's Torah portion. And the minute that happened, the uh, plague ceased. So this week's Torah portion begins with God telling Moses that Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, which means Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron, we'll soon talk about why all of a sudden has to again introduce us to who Pinchas is. We already know who Pinchas is. Um, uh, it says that he's the one that uh, brought an end to my wrath. And when he acted in zealousness, and therefore he ended the dying of the Jewish people. And uh, therefore I am giving him the covenant of peace. And when he says, the covenant of peace, um, he then goes on to say the next verse that what does he mean that there's going to be for him and his offspring that they're going to be Kohanim. They're going to be priests in the Holy Temple. Now, obviously the question, the first question that comes to mind is what do you mean that he earned to be a priest? God told already Moses to tell, to tell Aaron and his children that Aaron would be the high priest his children would be the priest. And then all those who come after the offspring, the males would be the priest. And so why, if Pinchas is a grandson of Aaron, why wasn't he already a Kohen? So Rashi tells us, because if you look at the words that God told Moses, he said, Aaron and their sons will be the priest and the sons that will be born, talking futuristic. And when he says that, that means that the, the grandchildren that were already born 
weren't priests. There was only one grandchild that, that, were, that was already born at that time, and that was Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the grandson of Aaron. So he was the only one in the family who was not a Kohen. At this moment, he became a Kohen. Now that is very, very interesting because to point out, he became a Kohen, which means that he is the only human being in the history of mankind which earned becoming a Kohen. There's nothing that Aaron did that earned becoming a Kohen as far as the Torah says. It's a gift from God that God gave Aaron and his offspring. The only person who became a Kohen in response to something that he did was Pinchas. Now, what's even more interesting is that when you look in Kabbalah, the Kohen is called the Ish HaChesed, the man of kindness. The entire job of the Kohen service in the Holy Temple was all about bringing atonement to the Jewish people who came to do repentance. So if that be the case, isn't it so interesting that Pinchas earns to become a man of kindness through an act of violence, through killing Zimri and Cosby. Interesting. I find that very interesting, and we're going to have to talk about that. As you saw, that I spoke in the, in the, in the um, text message that I sent out, I mentioned that we're going to talk about the violence that we find in the Torah. Now, before I go further, I want to pause and I want to pay tribute and memory to a mentor and teacher of mine. When I was in New York, he's one of the mentors in the school, in the boys' school, Olatoira and Kran Heights. Um, and interesting enough, his name was Pinchas. And he passed away this morning, a Torah portion of Pinchas. So, you know, may his soul be bound with the source of life. Um, so yeah, Pinchas Yeshua was his name. Okay, let's go further. And, and interesting, by the way, because in this week's Torah portion, as I just told you, Pinchas is the opening of the Torah portion. And then we're about to learn that when God tells Moses in this Torah portion that it has come his time to pass away because he, he can't enter Israel. And, and Moses' response was he wants to make sure that there's a successor to lead the Jewish people. And what's the, the successor's name? Yehoshua. So the two names that are really pointed out in this week's Torah portion is Pinchas Yehoshua, which, which was the name of uh, my teacher, Rabbi Pinya. We used to call him, that was his name that they called him, Pinya. Rabbi Pinya um, Korf. Okay. So I just want to, you know, put it out there and dedicate this uh, these words we're going to share tonight to uh, Pina. Okay. You know what? Let me take an extra moment and share with you. Ismara Pinyakov was a very, very interesting person. Obviously, you know, he was a mentor in the yeshiva, a very special, very special person. Born in Russia, came here, and, you know, 
And here's an interesting, I wanted to share with you two teachings that he taught me that I shared with my classmates today that stand out of my memory of the things he taught me. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't a great intellect in that sense, but he, he taught me, you know, two of the most in theological debates Two of the deepest debates you'll find. One is the coexistence of freedom of choice and divine providence. Do we have freedom of choice or is everything ordained by God? And he answered me a one-liner. That was, you know, his way. He didn't get caught up in the whole cerebral pleasure of it. He got straight to the point and he told me, Foresight, freedom of choice, hindsight, divine providence. Really deep. Foresight, freedom of choice, hindsight, divine providence. If right now something has to be done, I have a choice. Once it's been done, even if it seems to be that I made a bad choice and it's my fault, I need to accept that that too was divine providence ordained by God. The next uh, great theological debate that he gave me a one-liner for was the debate between faith and hishtadlut, effort. Do we have faith, everything is from God, or do we say, no, you have to work harder, you have to work harder, effort. And here too, in his unique way, Rapinya gave me a one-liner to sum it all up. He said to me like this, Hasidim always hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Yes, we live with faith, but know that it is our absolute mandate to prepare for the worst. And it's interesting because later on I saw that the previous Rebbe in 1943, he was talking, he was talking very powerfully about Mashiach coming and that it was an opportunity that year to really bring Mashiach. And yet in that year, he was talking about buying property. He was guiding a certain school and buying property and the question was like, why? Why are we buying property if we're, if we're going to Israel imminently? And the previous Rebbe there too explained that a complete righteous person who has absolute faith that Mashiach is coming right now and yet he doesn't do everything in his power to bring goodness, kindness, divinity, revelation in the world for tomorrow, he becomes no more complete righteous tzaddik. Interesting. So here too, we see that line of we hope for the best and not just hope like, okay, ojala. no, we really completely believe a hope that, that we believe that it's going to be good. And yet it's our mandate to prepare if it isn't going to be good. So I just wanted to share those two one-liners of this man, which really I carry with me all the time. 
So again, foresight, freedom of choice, hindsight, divine providence. And the other one is, it is our obligation to have the faith and hope that it's going to be great and to put in the effort as if it's going to be not good. Okay, let's go. A couple of things I want to talk to you about this Pinchas guy in the Torah portion. So number one, there's something very interesting. It's the only time in the entire Torah that you will find this, that in shuls, when they take out the Torah, if you ask the rabbi, if you can get a moment to see it, I showed it to the people last Shabbat at the afternoon services when we read this beginning of this portion. The word shalom, peace. I have given him my covenant of peace. The word peace is made up of shin, lamid, vav, mem. Four letters. And the letter vav is cracked. Now, we don't have no cracked letters in the Torah. But this vav is the only vav, the only letter that's cracked purposely. And the answer is because the covenant of peace is incomplete until Mashiach comes and there will be only peace that will reign upon this world between man and man. Okay, now let's understand why. Why does the Torah take the, the, uh, the job to go ahead and introduce to us the lineage of Pinchas? Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron. Why? We know who he is. So here is an interesting thing. Let me tell you a little bit about who Pinchas was. Pinchas comes from a couple of people. From one side, he has two grandparents. And that is, he has from the family of Joseph and from the family of Aaron. His father's father was from Aaron. Another person, another part of this family from his mother's side is that he comes from Yisro, which was Moses' father-in-law. Now, let's talk about just two. We'll talk about the third one in a moment. But let's talk about two. Aaron, this is all in the Talmud, it says. Aaron and Yitro. Let's talk about the two. Aaron, what is Aaron known as? In the Mishnah and Ethics of Our Father, it says that Aaron loved peace and was a pursuer of peace. And that is why we find a unique difference between how the Jews mourned Aaron after his passing and how they mourned uh, Moses. By Moses, it says that the men mourned. By Aaron, it says the men and the women mourned. And the reason was because Moses was primarily a teacher and therefore he was more occupied with the men while Aaron was a peacemaker and he focused very much on making peace between husband and wives and therefore he was loved by all. So in the genetics from his grandfather, Aaron, there was peace, compassion and love all about the Kohen. Now, let's talk about Jisro. Jisro was a priest, and it says as follows, Pitem Agolois 
So maybe you heard about this, um, and, and I'm sure you, can, you came across it. You know, they used to, I don't know if they still do it. It's a very cruel thing, but they used to have gestopt agains. It's in Yiddish called gestopt agains. And what that means is that they would force feed the geese so that the liver would become very, very enlarged with blood and gorged. And then they would kill it and they would eat it. And that's supposed to be very, very delicious. And it says that Yithro, he didn't do it to the geese in order to eat it, but rather he would do it to the calves in order to bring really fat sacrifices to all the idol worship that he did. You know that Yisro says that he served all the idols and he turned them all down. And then later when he came to Mount Sinai to meet Moses and bring Moses, his wife and children back, he converted to Judaism. And that's why he says, now I know that the God of the Jews is greater than all gods because he was a seeker and he searched all and he served all with all he could. However, even though he did this for a religious reason, but that notion for a human to be able to force feed animals, to make it fat for no other reason than to kill it is cruel. So we have here Pinchas that from one side of his genes, he has kindness, compassion, and love. But from the other side of his genes, he had also cruelty. Introduced Joseph to the picture. Joseph, he was the one that stuffed. He, he, he broke, he forced down, he subdued. That's the right word I'm looking for. He subdued his, his um, evil inclination when the mistress of the house, the wife of his master, the wife of Potiphar, wanted to seduce him, he subdued. So the Talmud tells us that the Jews called Pinchas Ben Puti, the son of Puti. He's a descendant of Puti. Now, who is Puti and what is Puti? So Puti has a couple of meanings. Puti can mean from the word to stuff. Yisro pitem agolois, he force fed and stuffed. Or it can also mean what Joseph, he was pitui to his yetzer. He subdued his yetzahara. Now, what is the Torah doing? The Torah is telling us that while the Jewish people said, ah, Pinchas, a nobody, rose up and killed a prince of the house of Shimon. So why did he do that? And, and, and just pay attention to what's going on here in the story. It's remarkable. 24,000 people died and there was continuance of death until Pinchas did what he did. He saved the Jewish people and yet the Jewish people are frowning upon him saying, how dare you kill a prince? Why were they saying, how dare you kill a prince? Now we'll understand why. They were questioning, is he just a nasty, cruel person? And he let out his anger and his nastiness 
in killing a person. So yeah, it was for a good reason, but it all comes from nastiness and cruelty. So I want to share with you an interesting teaching in the Talmud in Tractic Shabbat, where it talks about how people are born under different constellations and the way the stars are set up and the different hours affects the nature and the personality of the person. According to that Talmud, it says if you're born on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, different times of the year. Interesting, yeah? The Talmud has a very detailed, so to speak, horoscope of how people are affected, their genetics, how they're affected and what inclinations they have. Then it talks about a person who was born under the influence of the Mazal Edom. Adam means red. And it says that such a person has an inclination to violence and murder. And the Talmud says, someone who finds himself doing that, he should become a shochat, a ritual slaughterer. Why? Because he should use out that side of his innate personality for the right purpose. I heard the Rebbe once speaking about people that were being violent. And the Rebbe said, you want to pour blood? Become a shochat, the Talmud says. You have a need to pour Jewish blood? This was Jews. The Rebbe said, if, you, if as a Jew you feel the need to pour Jewish blood, become a mohel, someone who does circumcision, so that you'll do it in a way of holiness and, and properness and healthiness and not in a way of violence and destruction. So... Going back to that, we now see that they were saying that Pinchas, he was a violent person and this was an act of violence. Hence, even though what he did, brought, it brought an end to the plague that was killing the Jewish people. Nevertheless, let's not glorify him because we do not glorify violence. End the story cruelty, and violence. The Torah says, not at all. This wasn't an act of cruelty. This was an act of love and compassion to end the plague. Hence, the Torah testifies that Pinchas at this moment was not acting as the grandson of Yisro who had cruelty in his past, but rather he was acting at the, as the grandson of Aaron, who was all about peace and ending violence and ending suffering and ending pain and fighting. Interesting. And now built on this, I'm gonna already start with what I'm scared to talk about is the violence in the Torah. I wanna share with you a teaching of the holy Kotzkerov, the Kotzkerov, famous, famous dynasty of, of, of Rebbes. Um, Ger comes from him and he was a student of, of, of the Yiddish. And he has an interesting teaching. He says like this, one of the secrets of reincarnation was taught to us by our sages that Elijah and Pinchas are both two reincarnations of the same soul. So the soul of Pinchas is the soul of Elijah. And yet Elijah became a leader and Pinchas never became a leader. Now, both of them had to face the Jewish people when the Jewish people were doing wrong. 
Pinchas had to face the Jewish people when they were serving an idol worship driven by the heat and passion of idolatry, immorality. And so too, Elijah the prophet had to face the Jewish people on Mount Carmel when they were serving the idols. What was the difference between the two? Pinchas brought an end to it with a spear. While Elijah the prophet brought an end to it with a miracle of praying to God that the fire come down from heaven upon the sacrifices that he brought and not upon the sacrifices which the priests of that idol called Baal were bringing. Because that was the showdown. He told the Jewish people, let them, them bring sacrifices and let me bring a sacrifice. No one will bring fire. And the one that the fire comes down from heaven to consume will tell you who is true and who is not. And not only that, Elijah the prophet poured water on the sacrifice. They shouldn't think that he had some gadget set up. And then he prayed and the fire came down. Says the Kotzke Rebbe, Pinchas used violence, even though it saved the Jewish people and even though it ended immorality and idolatry, but he used violence. He never became a leader. While Elijah the prophet did not use violence, Elijah the prophet was a leader. So when we say here that God is testifying that Pinchas is not coming from a genetic pool of violence and cruelty, but rather peace and love, and nevertheless, the Kotzkerebbe says, violence is violence, he will not become a leader. Very interesting. And we'll talk more about this. Let's go further with the Torah portion. So then the Torah tells us that because um, the Midianites, they, they went so far as to even set, you know, use their own daughters and princesses just because they knew that God would be mad at the Jews for it. So therefore, God says that we should pay back. We are not allowed to conquer Midian at that time, but we should, you know, put some, some pain on them for what they did, you know, pushing them back. Anyway, right after the 24,000 Jews um, passed away from this plague because of the immorality, um, God tells Moses, count the Jewish people. Now, there's two reasons why Rashi says over here, God tells to count the Jewish people. One reason is, as I told you, we're about to hear God tell Moses that your time has come because 40 years has passed. The Jews are going to go into Israel. And because you hit the rock, um, you cannot go into Israel. So one teaching says that when a shepherd is given a flock to take care of, when he returns it to the master, he has to count. So in the beginning, when they leave Egypt, they count when he receives the flock from God. And then when he's giving it back to God, the flock, he has to count them again. That's one teaching. Another teaching is that when the wolves broke into the, the place where the sheep were and killed some sheep, so the shepherd immediately counts the sheep because they're so precious to him. So too, right after the Midianites they got into the camp and enticed the Jewish people with idolatry and idolatry. 
and the Jews died, so he considers them the wolves, and therefore um, he counts them to see the Jewish people, how many are left. Okay, then it goes through the counting of all the Israelites, then it goes through the counting of the Levites. Now, at this point, God tells Moses that he should prepare Joshua how to, how to go ahead and divide the land. Now, the land of Israel is divided amongst the tribes. Take out, um, Jacob had 12 sons. Take out the son called Levi, number three. Take out the son called Joseph, number 11. Instead, put Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So you have 12 without Levi. And therefore, the, Jew, the land of Israel is divided into 12 pieces, one for each tribe. And the tribe of Levi does not receive a, tri a piece in the land. Now, with that being said, how do you divide? And what's amazing here is that the land of Israel was divided on three levels. What are those three levels? The first thing the verse says, logic. A larger population tribe is going to receive a larger land. A smaller population tribe is going to receive a smaller part of land. According to that, Joshua would have to see how much each tribe has and divide the land accordingly. So that's logic. The next thing it says, the verse, right after that, the verse says, and you shall use a lottery system. A lottery system is not logical. A lottery system means that you go ahead and you put on, on 12 pieces of parchment, 12 tablets, you put the uh, uh, borders of a piece of land, you put it into a hat, and you put 12 names of the 12 tribes, and each one picks out a name and a, and a portion, and well, lo and behold, you have a lottery system. There's no logic there. It's just pure luck, shall we say. And then the last thing is, the third thing is that it is divided by the mouth of God. And I'm just going to move in because it's starting to rain here. Um, and, how, and how do you divide it by the mouth of God? So as you know, um, the high priest, at that point, it wasn't Aaron. It was his son, Elazar. Aaron had already passed on. So Elazar wore the, the, the breastplate. The breastplate was with a 12 stones with all the letters of the names of the tribes were on each stone, a different name of a tribe. The breastplate was actually folded. There was the 12 stones and then there was a fold and it made a pocket. And in the pocket, you put a parchment with the name of God, which is called the Urim Bitumim. And when the high priest wore the Urim Bitumim, he would face the Holy of Holies and that way, when they would ask him a question, he would look at the letters of the stones and the ones that would shine out would spell out the answer. So it says that they divided the land in accordance to that system where the Urim Betumim would be God telling by shining out, excuse me, the letters, it would say this tribe gets this portion with this boundaries. Now, why? Why would there have to be the three different systems? I mean, they're all going to come up miraculously. They all came up with the exact same conclusion. Who gets what? So why did God have to do all three levels? 
to understand this, we need to understand something very interesting. The land of Israel, ever since it was conquered by Joshua, until then it was called the land of Canaan. Ever since Joshua conquered it and it became the land of Israel, it has never stopped being called in our prayers, in our studies, the land of Israel. So for 2,000 years, it was not under Jewish domain. And nevertheless, we always called it the land of Israel. Why is it the land of Israel if the British are there or the Ottoman Empire or, or whatever? Why are we calling it the land of Israel? The answer is because the land of Israel was given to us on all three levels. God, the creator of the world, upon who Samuel the prophet said, he is not a person to change his mind. Therefore, he said, I will not go back on it. So we receive this land by gift from the creator of the land, which doesn't really need UN's vote. Number two, okay, so if it belongs to us only as a gift of God, there is no internal emotional connection or logical connection. It's ours because it's ours. God said so. So therefore, God said, no, I want your relationship with the world to be, with Israel to be emotional and intellectual. I want you to understand that in the world, there are 10 different layers of holiness and Israel carries the holiest levels, the Holy of Holy, the Holy Temple, the courtyard, the, the, the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, Israel, and then it spreads out to the rest of the world. So I want you to intellectually and emotionally understand that this is the center of the universe. This is the place of holiness where the house of God is to be built emotionally and intellectually. And then there's Mazal. Mazal is an interesting intermediate between the word of God and the genetics of the soul. It's Mazal means luck, but Mazal also means a drip. For the essence of the soul drips into the outer layers of our psyche our power of pleasure, our power of will, our power of intellect and our power of emotions, our power of thought, speech, and action. So God has the land of Israel bound with the Jewish people and the Jewish people bound with the land of Israel on all levels, on an eternal level, on a luck encompassing level, and on an internalized intellectual, emotional, thought, speech, and action level. Okay. After that, like I said, there was the counting of the tribe of Levi as well. And then there's an interesting story. And I want you to take a moment to appreciate this interesting story. So even in the land of democracy, women weren't landowners and hence women weren't allowed to vote. Because obviously voting, uh, you know, primarily back in the day would focus on the governance of land and agriculture and stuff. And they felt that, you know, that the men who are going to have to deal with this, they were the ones that had the votes. So here's a story that goes back, literally, we're now in the year 5,781. 
This story took place in the year 2488. So you see how many millenniums back is an interesting story where five daughters of a man called Slavchad said, they say to Moses, our father died and not because he was from the people of Korach, nor was he from the people of the spies that spoke against the land of Israel. There are those that say he was the wood chopper. Some say he was the wood chopper that got uh, killed. He had the wood collector um, that collected woods on Shabbat and he, and he was killed. Either way, for, for desecrating the Shabbat, either way, they say that he has no sons. He only has us, his five daughters. So who is going to get his allotted portion in the land of Israel? Because he too has a right. Now, if you're going to say that as daughters, we are not considered his seed, then you must, you must go ahead and make his brother marry our mother to have a son. But if you're saying that his brother can't marry his mother, our mother, his widow, because we are considered his children, well, then if we're his children, let us inherit his land. Moses was stumped. And Moses turns to God, and God said, they speak correctly. And God then gives the laws of inheritance. The way inheritance works by the Jewish people is that it goes to the males. And the reason why it goes to the males is because if it went to the male, it would stay in the tribe. Because you're Jewish if your mother's Jewish, but you're a Kohen Levite or Israelite if your father is a Kohen Levite or Israelite. So the tribal goes by the father. The land was divided by the tribes. Hence, the woman would inherit her husband, her kids, so that she stays in his tribe because that's who her kids are. So the land would continue belonging to the correct tribe. So therefore, the land goes to the males. However, here we now have the law that if there's no sons, it goes to the daughters. You'll, say, you'll see later that the fellow tribe mates of these girls say to Moses, one second, you're giving their father's land, who's one of us, to his daughters. But now they're going to marry other tribes. And that means that our land is going to be taken away from our tribe. And God says, correct, and therefore let these five girls marry within the tribe. Now, obviously, married within the tribe doesn't mean a selection of 10 to 12 people. We're talking about the entire tribe of Joseph, um, whichever, Menashe, Ephraim, the offspring of Joseph. Okay, with that being said, we go further. And here, God's telling Moses, it's time for you to prepare for your passing into the afterlife. And Moses' first concern is not about his own financial affairs, his own children, but rather he wants to know as the shepherd of the Jewish people, who is going to be take him over, allow not these sheep to be as a flock without, allow not these people to be as a flock without a shepherd. And God tells him, take your student Joshua. So here is something very interesting. According to Jewish law, there's lineage. Right, The high priest, his brother Aaron, the successor was his son, the oldest son, Elazar, that was alive. And the, the King David is succeeded by his son. Who is his son? 
his son is um, um, Solomon. However, here, because this wasn't yet established, Moses was legally a king, the Talmud says. But because it wasn't established, he's not called like David was called David HaMelech, the king, Shlomo HaMelech. Moses was called Moshe Rabbeinu, our Rebbe. And therefore, God tells him it's not going to go from you to your offspring. It's going to go to your student, your spiritual offspring, which is Joshua. Now I want to take you back for a quick moment. The time is ticking here. I want to take you back for a quick moment to the story of when Joseph brings his two sons to Jacob, who at that point, his eyes were already dimmed from elder, elderliness, and he brings Menashe and Ephraim to be blessed, and he puts Menashe on the right side of Jacob and puts Ephraim, the younger brother, on the left side of Jacob, and he says, Father, bless my children, and Jacob crosses his hands and puts his right hand over the head of the younger son. And Joseph says, no, my father, I set them up that the older one is on your right side already. And Jacob answers, Joseph, your deity, deity, I know my son, I know the older one shall also be great. However, the younger one shall be greater than the older one. Now, why, why did he say that? Because Joshua, who is the leader of the Jewish people, brings them into Israel, conquers Israel, and teaches them the Torah to stabilize them in Israel, to know all the laws, Joshua comes from the younger son, Ephraim. Hence, in order to empower Joshua with what he would need to conquer the land and settle the people and teach them the Torah, Jacob put his right hand on Joshua, on, on Ephraim, Ephraim's head. And then goes an interesting Torah portion the rest of the Torah portion is all about the special sacrifices for special days. You have the sacrifice of every morning and evening. You have the special additional sacrifice of Shabbat, the special additional sacrifice of Rosh Chodesh, the special additional sacrifice of Passover, the special additional sacrifices of Shavuot, the special, uh, the, the special additional sacrifices of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Kippur and of all the days of Sukkot and the eighth day Shmini Atzeret. So I want to just share with you, you will notice that whenever there's a special Shabbat, a Shabbat Rosh Chodesh or, or a Shabbat holiday or any holiday, you take out two Torahs. In the first Torah portion, you'll read the Shabbos portion, or if it's a holiday, you'll read the holiday portion. The second Sefer Torah, you will always read some verses from this portion here, which talks about the sacrifices and the laws of the holiday. Okay? I want to share with you also that before we go into the topic of the violence in the Torah, I want to also share with you that this week's Haftorah is a very special Haftorah because we're now in the three weeks where back in the times of the first temple, the Babylonians, they conquered Israel and destroyed the temple in, in stages. It first started where they made a siege on the 10th of Tevet, and that went on for a long time. On the 17th of Tammuz, which was this past Sunday, they breached the walls of Jerusalem, and that's why there was a fast day this past Sunday. 
three weeks later is going to be Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, where they reach the Holy Temple and they put it on fire. So these three weeks are called Ben Hamitzarim. They're in the times of constraints. And therefore there are laws that we do. We don't take haircuts, we don't make weddings. We don't do anything that would take the name Shechianu. We're careful not to do um, anything risky or dangerous. Um, you know, a bunch of laws about this. Now, because these are the three weeks which leads up to the destruction of the temple, the Rebbe tells us that how do we strengthen the imminent building, rebuilding of the temple by studying the laws. Why? Because our sages tell us that when one studies the laws, for example, of a certain burnt offering or whatever it is, God says, you study the laws. And even though you can't physically do it right now, I will consider it as if you did it because you studied the laws. Hence, by studying the laws of building the Bet HaMikdash, we have already God telling us it's as if. And when God says it's as if, means it's spiritually manifesting itself, the building of the temple may it descend from heaven speedily. So before we go further, I want to learn one law in the book of Maimonides about the laws of building the temple. So in the temple, there is the holy ark and there's all the other portions. Now, when the second, when the first temple was destroyed, the Jewish people were led with, by the Babylonians into exile. 70 years later, which by the way, is right after the story of Purim, Mordechai's friend, Ezra, comes back because they were given permission by the offspring of Esther and Achashverosh to rebuild the holy temple. In discussion of offspring, the Yorosh, Kairosh, the son, the grandson, they were given permission to rebuild the holy temple. And therefore, Ezra came to prophesize. What did he have to prophesize? So our sages tell us that the one thing that has to be in the exact spot where it's meant to be, believe it or not, is not the holy ark and the holy of holies. The one item in the holy temple which has to be precisely where it is meant to be is the outside altar, the altar where we bring the sacrifices. And Maimonides tells us in this law that you should know that that is the exact place where Abraham bound Isaac on the altar. As it says over there, go to the land of Moriah. And when Solomon built the holy temple, it says, and he built the house on the Mount Moriah. So here you know that what is the ultimate precision of space that has to be done correctly is the altar in which the sacrifices of atonement were brought. I want to share with you another teaching and then we'll get into our topic. And that is that it says that Adam was created from the earth, right? God formed from the earth, the body of Adam. So, so one of the sages teach that God took a little bit of earth from all over the world because the verse says, from dust you come, from earth you come, and to earth you shall be returned. So in order for a person to be buried wherever in the world he dies, God 
created mankind from the earth of all over the world so that the earth would again accept the body and allow it to decompose within it. That's one teaching. However, there's another teaching that says that God formed the body of Adam specifically from the earth, precisely where this altar is meant to be built. Why? So our sages say, God said, let him be created from the place of his atonement. Mankind was meant to be imperfect and therefore mankind would sin. Mankind would be, have to go through an atonement process. The atonement process and in the holy temple was primarily at the altar and therefore God created the body of man and mankind from the earth of the altar. Okay, so we did the mitzvah of studying the laws of building the holy temple in these three weeks in which the holy temple and Jerusalem was destroyed. And now let's go to the topic which I wanna talk about. And this isn't an easy topic for me to talk about because this isn't like I read a teaching and I'm gonna just share it with you. I'm struggling with this. You know, Judaism is not the religion of the sword by any stretch of the imagination. If you look in the Torah, you'll see right, left and center. You do this, you get stoned. You do this, uh, your head gets cut off. You do this, uh, you, you're choked. You do this, uh, you're burnt. And it seems to be that this death penalty is right, left and center. And then comes the Talmud and says, that any courthouse that was able to rule on any specific case, capital punishment, that the person is guilty and was put to death more than once in 70 years is called murderous, a murderous courthouse. Now, seemingly, if you read the laws, it seems to be that there would be 70 a day minimal per courthouse because of how many laws are punishable by death. So just that you should know, and I wanna share with you an interesting teaching and what I'm saying now, I don't even know if I should say it on a recording that's gonna be sent out, but that's who I am, so I'm gonna say it. I have a classmate by the name of Farkash, Velvo Farkash, a very nice boy. He's a teacher, boy, he's a boy. He's a teacher of children. His father is, God bless him. He is an unbelievable rabbi. Uh, so he, he masters in really so much law. He comes from Jerusalem and he wrote books on the laws concerning the woman's cycle, purity and impurity, the laws. So much so that you should know that for him to be able to write that book, he not only had to study the laws, he had to study the biology of the woman's body. So much so that I heard stories in which gynecologists came to confer with him about their patients. Unbelievable. On top of that, I want you to know that there's a law that only blood from the uterus is considered impure, which creates a, a whole category of laws because 
women have staining at certain times before the period, after the period, and you have to ask the rabbi if the staining, if it's white, if it's red, if it's green, different colors, because only blood is impure. And then there's a law. And what happens if a woman had a surgery or whatever it may be? So then the blood is not from the uterus. It's from a wound. That's not impure. Now, I want to share with you what people did to this man. One of them took one of the, a female garment and he had a cut and he put the garment to the cut for the blood. And he came as if he's asking a question from this Rabbi Farukash, he should live and be well. He asked him a question, is this blood, is this blood that makes her impure? Does she have to now wait seven days, go to the mikvah or not? So the law is that a rabbi is not allowed to answer the question with light inside because the color has to be done by daylight. So the rabbis actually go to the window or they go outside, they, they only do it by day. There's just huge laws about this. He looks at it in the sunlight. He gives it back to the person and says, this isn't blood from the uterus, she's okay. Now how he knew that and how he did that, I don't know. But I just wanna tell you, he's a giant in this field. Nope. That's all a prerequisite to the story I'm about to tell you. His son witnesses a person come to his father and ask him a question. And there's a lot of complicated questions here because what happens if a couple is trying to have a baby and, and she's ovulating too early uh, because you have to wait five days from the beginning of the onset of the period and then you have to wait to seven days. And what happens if she ovulates early and she can never get pregnant, the doctors tell her. The rabbis are worried about this and they do whatever they can to make life possible without transgressing a biblical law. So he goes ahead and he asks the rabbi this question and the rabbi gives him an answer. The guy leaves and my friend Velvel turns around to his father and says, Tata, did you not write in your book that this is not okay? You just told him it's okay. And he told him like this, his father told him, in the book, you have to write unadulterated law. However, when a human being comes to you and asks you the question with struggles, it is the job of the rabbi to have big shoulders to dig deep into all the different teachings to find a loophole for an extreme case like this. I, I learned that and I said, wow, what the what's the difference between a healthy, constructive rabbi and an unhealthy, destructive rabbi? And, and I won't go further with that. But now I wanna go back to our conversation. In the book, you don't keep Shabbat, put to death. You do this, put to death. You say this, put to death. The book is telling you the absolute laws, the absolute boundaries. However, in front of the rabbis, to put someone to death means that there has to be witnesses and not only witnesses, the witnesses have to warn him and the witnesses have to, and the rabbis work tirelessly to find a discrepancy between the two witnesses so that they won't put this person to death. So the same God who says all these laws that are capital punishment says, and if you found yourself having to implement this more than once in 70 years, your murderous courthouse, and you're not doing your due diligence in finding the loopholes to save a person's life. So 
The Torah is not violent. And yet you find so much violence in the Torah. And some of them I struggle with greatly. I mean, I'm not just talking about the, the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, I'm not just talking about the stories where you can say, well, what do you want from the Torah? The Torah is just documenting what human beings did. I'm talking also about the law of eradicating the Amalekis. I mean, what, what, what's going on here? So I'm going to struggle through this last remaining part of the class. I'm not going to be speaking as if I got the answers and you listen to me. I'm going to struggle here together with you from the same side of the desk. But I want to share with you some things that I've learned in the holy teachings. There's a question, how did Isaac have an offspring like Esau? And of course, can we blame a father for the children? Eventually, the children go on and, you know, we know that, that, that friends have a greater impact eventually on a child than, than a father does. And, you know, who you get caught up with and who your neighbors are are going to overpower who your parents were. But nevertheless, the question, Isaac, such a holy man, Esau. And it's interesting, you know, the question is more on Esau and Isaac than it is on Yishmael and, and Abraham. Because Yishmael was more a pleasure seeker. Isaac, Esau was a violent man. He was a rapist. He was a murderer. How can that come from Isaac, who was so just and so pure. So I remember this teaching of the Rebbe of saintly, righteous, and blessed memory. The Rebbe says that in Rashi, when Rashi on the verse introduces the children of Isaac, it says, Eile told us Yitzchak, these are the offsprings of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And Rashi says, because the Torah, the story is going to go off on a tangent and how long it took them to have kids and what they did. And therefore, Rashi's saying, you know, he starts off with saying he's about to list the names, but then he goes off on a tangent. You should know that when he says these are the kids, he's referring to what you're later going to see written. Isaac and Jacob, that's what this verse means. It just went off on a tangent to tell you the backstory. The Rebbe says Rashi is also saying far deeper than that. Rashi is saying that the only Esau, which was the son of Isaac, is not the Esau that prowled upon the earth, the face of the earth, killing and raping and stealing. No. Isaac's offspring was the one that's written in the Torah. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? So the two... It's actually three. The three primary attributes of God, which God used. God has no attributes. God created attributes through which to communicate and transmit. However, the three primary attributes are chesed, gevurah, and tiferet. In human language, that is kindness, strictness, justice, and compassion. Now, from kindness, we call revelation. The revelation of God can only lead to goodness. The, the, the justice and, and strength, we call that concealment. It's the withholding, the power of withholding, contraction. Because you know that if from Niagara Falls, the electricity came straight into my laptop that I'm using right now, there would be a frying taking place. 
there has to be a contraction, a contraction, and a contraction. And hence, you have the FPL major systems. Then you have the smaller systems until you have the ones in the neighborhood. Then you have the ones that are hanging on the pole, those two grand great canisters. And finally, it can come into your house just the right amount that nothing's going to fry when you plug it in. So too, this second attribute of God is all about concealment and contraction to make sure that the revelation of attribute number one will not fry us, but rather will sustain us. Hence, you will remember that at Mount Sinai, when God was talking directly to the Jews, the Jews were dying and God had to consistently resurrect them until they went running to Moses and said, Moses, let God speak to you, not to us, because we're dying. So basically, we need that second attribute of constraint, concealment, contraction. And then there's a third one, which is compassion and mercy. Put that aside for right now. In the first two, the right side, which is revelation, nothing bad can ever come from it. But from the left side, where there's justice and compassion, bad can come from it. Because from concealment and contraction, can lead to a sense of abandonment, which can lead to a sense of feeling disconnected and disassociated, which can lead to evil. You know the stories, right? You've seen many times. It's when the person feels abandoned by his own that the other side comes along and says, come, we'll show you love. And then before long, now we have uh, a young child that ends up, you know, on the streets in a gang and a gangster with drugs and murder. All started because the child felt unloved at home. And these gang members seem to be such protective and gifting parents. So when there's abandonment issues, there's trouble issues. However, as I said to you in the beginning, the attribute of God is pure. The attribute of God is holy. However, when it descends into human experience, where it can be used in the wrong way, let's talk about, you know, you probably all watch the Russian movies where the Russian superior tells the Russian subordinate, we give information on a need-to-know basis. Why? Very simple why. Because constraint, which gives me and not you, is what gives me power over you. So the notion of constraint can be used in a very abusive way. So when we find the talk of Gevurah in the Torah, we're talking about Gevurah the way it is on God's throne, where the entire issue of contraction and concealment is all part of the healing. So the revelation won't blind us, fry us, and destroy us. However, when that manifests itself down here in the human realm, when it's in the hands of he or she who does not have humility and selflessness, but rather has arrogance, has control issues, has uncertainty, insecurity, self-centeredness, and all the other yummy stuff that human beings are plagued with, then all of a sudden this power of power and constraint and concealment and withholding and, and, and all of that becomes tools of abusiveness. Hence what the Rebbe is telling us, Isaac was not like his father Abraham. The stories of Abraham was all about 
kindness, gifts, the tent with the four doors so everyone could come in and receive. Isaac was the well digger. He told people, don't wait for money to fall from heaven. Dig within, work, justice. Now the offspring of Isaac is Esau. Hence you will see that in the Torah, it clearly says that Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob. Because Isaac didn't see Esau as the boy who on his 13th day, year, on, his, on the birthday, on his 13th birthday, would kill, Kim, kill King Nimrod. He saw Isaac, as, he saw Esau as a continuation of who he would be. The power of, of, of strength, the power which is not always push aside, look away, but no, make eye contact, elevate, make it happen down here. However, Rebecca saw who Esau was actually becoming on the street. And that's why Rashi is saying, Isaac gave birth to the Esau, which is on the throne of God, the face of the ox, the left side power. As the verse in King Solomon says, how much wheat comes forth from the power of the ox and the plow. However, Rebecca saw Esau use his God-given talents of chaos, passion, and, and, and turned it into rage, intolerance, murder, self-centeredness, and all of that. Okay, now that we understand that God's, God's attribute of justice is all about divinity and is as divine and as, as godly as the attribute of kindness and the attribute of compassion, we now understand that when the Torah gives its rulings, it's not talking about the way we humans define it. Hence, God himself says, if you had to manifest justice into capital punishment, there's something wrong with you. Hence, there was a situation here. And I'm going to close up. And again, I will clearly tell you the title question, I think, as of right now, is still far stronger than my answer. Why is there so much violence in the Torah? However, we have to work on this answer. And there's different layers of this answer. I just don't want to go on and on. I will share with you two more things. Forgive me, I'm going over time. It's 842, sorry. I want to share with you, number one, remember what we said? God testifies that Pinchas was not acting out of cruelty. Pinchas was acting out of compassion for those who were dying in the plague. He wasn't taking a life. He was saving hundreds of thousands of lives. Number one. Number two, and here... I'm saying this and, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. Throw the sentence out there and then let you go. But I respect each and every one of you. You all have the same capacities I do to work this over. I'm just going to share with you a thought. The Torah is taking a person from their innate 
human traits of being an animalistic creature and helping it to transform its outer shell into a transparency to his or hers inner divinity. Hence the verse says, Pera Adam Yevaled, a person is born a wild animal. A person, I mean, you know, people talk about, oh, children are so pure and so innocent. Let me share with you that if you deal with children, you will know that children can be very, very cruel by nature. So therefore, Peda Adam Yevaled, we are born with some quite difficult, distasteful, cruel natures. Now, our job is to break that and to transform it into an absolute transparency to compassion, goodness, and purity. Now, what does have to happen sometimes is to fight fire with fire. So yes, we need to be gentle. We need to be gentle with ourselves. We need to be gentle with our children. We need to be gentle with our parents. We need to be gentle with our fellow man. However, sometimes when we look ourselves in the mirror, we have to allow, I, I'm gonna use some unhealthy words, bear with me. We have to allow for a low, a low degree of rage to push us through saying enough is enough. I've got to change. Now, obviously there's extreme cases, there's addiction and there's powerlessness, I, I get it all. But even in addiction powerlessness, there needs to be a certain level of rage to say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I'm going to do whatever it takes. And that might mean to surrender. And that might mean to be gentle, but we need to embrace that one of God's attributes is giburah, which is defined as strength, strictness, justice. We can't always just be only right-handed. We also have to be left-handed. And with that, I'm going to finish. And people, thank you.